0: Welcome to the Paul Post Podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or C-Post, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at ProfPaulPost. recording this on the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, and there was always going to be an element of deep soul-searching about losses, lessons, and failures. Looking at the damage inflicted on the concept of nation-building and a closely related issue, the doctrine of the responsibility to protect, Jonathan Powell, Tony Blair's former chief of staff, says he did not know whether this was for the short term or an inflection point that historians would look back on. Are we witnessing a temporary setback or a turning point professor?
1: Huge question. <laughs> Nothing harder to predict in the future, right? Let's take a step back and think about nine 11 itself. For me, when I think about nine 11, And I remember it very, very uh, vividly. How so? Because I was on my honeymoon when it happened. In terms of personal narrative, we were at a bed and breakfast. And I remember that morning we were getting up, there was another couple staying there who were from San Diego. And I remember them being like out in the hallway talking. And I just kind of said hi, and they had their bags, but they looked a little flustered. I said, what's going on? They said, well, we're supposed to go to the airport, but we can't go right now because something just happened in New York. They're saying like to just wait. I'm like, okay. So, you know, I, I, mentioned that to my wife. I said, Hey, you know, it seems like something went on in New York and we had the radio on upstairs where there was a TV and we were watching as the towers were smoking and we were like, wow, what, what's going on all this. And then we saw them fell. We saw them fall and, you know, so we're watching that. So that was how we experienced. 9 11. And actually, uh, shortly thereafter we were, where we went for our honeymoon, we could actually drive, uh, you know, it was a long drive, but we started driving back. And I remember that entire day, it was so bizarre because everywhere we went, it was like lights were turned down. It was like, no one knew what was going on, right? They were like, there was this attack, flights get shut down. And if you went to like a convenience store, the lights were dimmed, like people were like, we don't know what's gonna happen with power. We don't know what's gonna happen with this. I talked to my dad on the phone. He's not retired, but he was a small business owner. He owned some like convenience stores and service stations. And he just talked about how that day it was 14 hours of him just directing traffic because it was people coming to the gas station to fill up their cars. Cause everybody was just like, I don't know what's going on. And remember that the attacks happened very early that morning. So right away, people are just freaking out and they're freaking out all day. So it was just all day like this. He had, he talked about, he had to put in an extra order for gas. People were just freaking out. So a little bit of a personal story to just say the event was obviously very shocking to me to people I was around, to everybody. And in many ways, it was truly a shocking event. You could even say it was an anomaly, anomaly that was also inevitable. And so that's kind of weird, right? And this is something that I've come to when thinking about 9-11 over the past 20 years is the event itself, the actual attack, the way it was carried out, the manner in which it was carried out was just truly Worst case scenario, everything fell into place perfectly for Al Qaeda on that day and they were able to carry it out. And even then it still didn't go perfect for them, right? Because we had United 93, they actually brought down the plane, there were other issues, you know, there were only 19 hijackers because one of them couldn't get up. So even then they still had issues, but There were so many things that had to go perfect for them to be able to carry that out and they were able to, and it just happened to fall into place. And that's what made it an anomaly. That it's like, this was such an immense attack, so shocking in nature, but yet very unusual. Not unusual though, and this is where it goes to the inevitable, not unusual in the idea that someone would want to attack the United States. Not unusual in the fact that there was a terrorist organization In fact, Al-Qaeda themselves had actually already attacked the World Trade Centers. They had done so about a decade earlier in the the early 1990s. And Al-Qaeda had already been involved in other attacks in Yemen, in Kenya. I mean, this was part of the reason why they were already on the top of the watch list for the Clinton administration. So the idea that there would be an attack, that was not an anomaly. The idea that someone would want to attack the United States was not strange but the actual attack itself was so spectacular. And I think that's even the word that was used, right? That's the word phrase used by officials, terrorist experts, that that was actually the objective was to carry out a quote, spectacular attack. And that's important because again, the idea that Al Qaeda would want to attack the United States, that was something that was already happening. The fact that if it wasn't Al Qaeda, it would have been some other organization, totally like yeah it's like someone's going to try to attack the united states when you're the major power you're the superpower you're involved around the globe you're going to create enemies and there's going to be people who are going to be unhappy with what you're doing and they're going to take actions like this but the fact that al-qaeda was able to pull off this spectacular attack and then our inability to contextualize it as a anomaly As a spectacular attack, as a one-off where everything had to be perfect. And by everything going perfect, I'm referring to even the fact that we had a delayed decision with our new administration. That al-Qaeda is as much attributed to Bush versus Gore as it is to anything else. Because due to the fact that the presidential election was delayed, that the decision was delayed, that delayed the transition, that delayed then the uptake of intelligence and information for the Bush administration. But according to the things that I've read over the years, the Bush administration really only started to be debriefed on Al-Qaeda during the summer, and even then the late summer. And part of that wasn't due to neglect on the part of the administration, it's just due to the delay in the transition. You know, so much so that I even say that maybe if Al Gore had been elected president, we wouldn't have had it a 9-11. Not because Al Gore would have been better at protecting the United States and Bush wasn't, but just because there wouldn't have been the transition. It would have been basically a continuation from the Clinton administration where they were already had al-Qaeda as like very much a prominent concern so that's just one example that's just one piece that really had to fall in place for something like this to be carried out but the fact that it was carried out the fact that it was so spectacular and so shocking and then our inability to contextualize it as a spectacular anomalous event that had profound implications
0: It strikes me there, Professor, that you're talking about the difference between a rational, well-thought-out, well-planned response and an emotional response. I can't help but feel that the decisions that were made were very emotional decisions. What choice would you have with an angry, confused, upset nation? What other choice would you have had?
1: I think it's right. I think it's important to also put yourself into the context of what the emotions were like after 9/11. And the emotions there's some positive to be talked about here. you know, the, the idea of like pro-American was very high globally, not just in the United States, but globally. I think even that evening, the Eiffel Tower was in red, white, and blue. They had changed, you know, the lighting of it. I mean, this was that everybody was like, you know, the attack on the United States was an attack on on all of us. Also, again, because it was so shocking. And that is actually what then enabled, I think, a very understandable response, which was Afghanistan and our decision to, to invade Afghanistan that had international support. I mean, the Taliban was already an entity that was kind of, you know, a, a, a pariah, if you will, like international pariah number one, and so it wasn't like this was this took a lot of convincing that hey, we have to kind of take do something against the Taliban because of the fact that they were giving shelter to Al Qaeda. But then what happened was okay, we use the attack against Afghanistan, but I think the idea that this was such a spectacular attack then fed into a notion that a spectacular attack requires a spectacular response. And I think that this fed into the notion of we have to change everything. We have to create the Department of Homeland Security. Rather than looking at it and saying, you know what? Yes, there were probably some inefficiencies in our intelligence and that could have been resolved. But again, they were already tracking this stuff. It's like, you know, did it require the creation of an entire new entity in order to do that? Now, I don't need to go into, there's many other people who could talk more about the ins and outs of homeland security, but I mean, that's a very extreme response to something that really was a, again, an anomalous event. And then kind of going from Afghanistan to say, okay, well, the objective of Afghanistan is we're attacking to remove the Taliban in order to acquire Osama bin Laden because he's responsible for this attack, though, of course, he didn't claim responsibility until actually officially he did about a, 2 years later i think or 3 years later is when he finally you know admitted yeah i did the whole thing but you know again our intelligence kind of told us that yes he was the one responsible and again we already had a track record of him like targeting the united states anyhow but then that started to feed into well it can't just be attacking afghanistan in order to remove al qaeda it's got to be bigger than that it's got to be You know, we the the way to face terror is freedom, right? And so you have this notion, you know, freedom reigns. And so we're going to go and we're going to remake Afghanistan. We're going to engage in nation building. We're going to create a thriving democracy there. And then we're going to do this elsewhere, right? We're going to do this in Iraq because part of the reason why something like 9-11 can happen is just the presence of bad things globally this axis of evil that exists in the world right and so we just need to take these measures and if we allow them to fester then more of this could happen i remember thinking this at the time so at the time there was um the movie tombstone and movie tombstone very popular movie a lot of people liked it over the years but the character i'm trying to remember who played Wyatt Earp but i remember Wyatt Earp's character um his good friend gets killed and he just goes on a rampage and he just goes and hunts down anybody who had anything to do with the organization that had anything to do with killing his best friend. And I kind of remember at the time feeling like the United States seems to be heading towards a wider type foreign policy here, which is that it was Al Qaeda that did this, but we're just going to go after everybody who has anything at all remotely to do with this attack. And that's where things started to get problematic was not keeping the focus on you know using the phrase war on terror as opposed to war on al-qaeda how can you declare war on an act but what you could do is you could say we're going to target this organization and states that support this organization which that would then have been consistent with what was the initial objective with afghanistan but instead you start to go into no it's a war on terror we're going after everybody here we're going after everyone and so That's where I think the emotional aspect of it started to kick in. And there was this need that a spectacular attack like this requires this spectacular response.
0: Inevitably, there are now calls for congressional hearings into why it was easier to stay in an unwinnable war for 20 years than it was to get out now, some critics of foreign policy establishment claim there is almost a warfare state embedded in foreign policy commentators in the think tank world. Talking about the fall of Kabul, Matt Das, Bernie Sanders' chief foreign policy advisor, said quote, if we've learned nothing else over the past week, we've learned how deeply committed our elite media is to the U.S. imperial project, end quote. Stephen Walt, a professor at Harvard Kennedy School and author of The Hell of Good Intentions, a book about U.S. foreign policy elite, has condemned, quote, the chorus of overwrought pundits unrepentant hawks and opportunistic adversaries now proclaiming that the defeat in Afghanistan has left U.S. credibility in tatters, end quote. Has it?
1: (laughs) Well, that goes back to the events that have happened over the past month, obviously. And that is what I was just talking about was how we got into Afghanistan and now, of course, 20 years later, and, and it's not an accident, it's it's not a coincidence that it's 20 years later, we've now left Afghanistan. That was intentional to be like, okay, where do we need to pick this? Let's do this around 9-11. In fact, I think at first 9-11 was considered the deadline, then they moved it to August 31st. But anyways, you know, it, it, it was intentional that we would be having these conversations at the same time. And the notion that the way that the war in Afghanistan has left U.S. foreign policy in tatters. I think it's first of all no I don't I don't think that's the case. It may not but it, what it might represent is the foreign policy establishment the foreign policy approach is completely fine it just may not be what we want it to be, right? It's not in tatters. What do I mean by that? Afghanistan is a great example of the notion of mission creep and the idea that you could be an Econ 101 student and learn about sunk cost fallacy uh, you just, you can't let it go. But let's go back to what I was just saying about the notion of Afghanistan, that the idea was that there was this spectacular attack in the United States and it requires a spectacular response. And indeed, this was an attack, not just on a building You know, to be, I mean, killed a number of people killed about 3000 people, but it wasn't just an attack on people. It wasn't just an attack on a building. It was an attack, as interpreted, an attack on an idea. The idea of America, the idea of democracy, the idea of capitalism, because it's not an accident that they were targeting the World Trade Center. An attack on globalization, attack on the very foundations of, quote, Western civilization. This is part of the reason why suddenly Samuel Huntington's book, The Clash of Civilizations, had a resurgence of interest following 9-11 was because of this idea that it's like, oh, is this a clash of civilizations? But there was no denying that it was an attack on an idea. And so as a result, it required a big response. And that response was in Afghanistan, we can't just remove Al-Qaeda. We can't just hunt down Osama bin Laden. If that was the objective, we accomplished that in 2011. In fact, we probably could have accomplished it sooner had we not then been distracted by other ventures like the war in Iraq. No, it became, this is about an idea. This is about the United States being the greatest country on earth and we can rebuild another nation. We can succeed where others have failed. The British have failed there. The Soviets have failed there. We can succeed there. We can create a thriving democracy because that's what's necessary for the survival of this idea that was attacked on 9-11. And so that's what fed into the notion of it can't just be a limited campaign of targeting al-Qaeda who, actually, who committed the attack or even targeting the Taliban who supported al-Qaeda. It's got to be bigger than that. And it's got to be about the ideals of America. But what that does is where is the end point? Where does that end? When do you reach the point where this is created, especially when you're dealing with a country that hadn't had the institutional structures that other countries had that were successful in this regard? Case in point, Japan, case in point, Germany, that yes, we were able to create democracies there, but they already had a history of these kind of political institutions and economic institutions that could be built upon. Not the case in Afghanistan. So you're basically building this from whole cloth. And how do you do that? Well, we're gonna take this on, but where? how long is that gonna take? Is it gonna take 20 years? Is it gonna take 30 years? Is it gonna take 40 years? And so again, I think that was really the big issue. It wasn't that the US foreign policy is in tatters. It's just that this was what led us to want to engage in Afghanistan in the first place was this notion that we could rebuild this country. Now the key is, it's just the one country. Now that might sound a little harsh because there's a lot of people being hurt by this. There's a lot of people in danger in Afghanistan. But I think where there's been problems, and some of the quotes that you've pulled out point to, is trying to extrapolate from what's happening in Afghanistan to broader ideas about U.S. foreign policy, our commitment to allies, our credibility, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, this points to a failure of U.S. policy in Afghanistan. It doesn't necessarily point to a failure of U.S. foreign policy
0: writ large. The attack. on 9-11 was spectacular and as you say it was also symbolic but it is fast just becoming a memory I was talking to an 18 year old the other day who asked me so what exactly happened on 9-11 and I do wonder how in terms of what you're teaching will you keep that memory alive
1: so for me And I think this is really kind of a meta point that's underlying everything I've been talking about uh, today is 9-11 was not itself a critical juncture or a change or an inflection point or some, you know, alteration of world. What it was is it was a reflection of the dark side to the unipolar moment. And this is how I teach this to the students is that following the end of the cold war the united states is now the major superpower of the world the only superpower i should say the unipole the hegemon however you want to phrase it we have all these different terminologies for this but you know the us is the dominant power what are we going to do with that power how are we going to use it and we use it to pursue a couple policies. We used it to pursue on the economic side, a policy of promoting economic globalization. And some people even referred to that as the Washington consensus type policies of opening up markets, encouraging other countries to open up their financial markets, trade markets. And then on the military side, on the security side, we pursued a policy of primacy. That was explicitly a policy articulated first by the George H.W. Bush administration and then embraced by the Clinton administration, which was the idea the United States would take whatever steps are necessary to ensure the continuation of unipolarity, continue the continuation of U.S. dominance, which would mean you know doing what is necessary to arrest the rise of another major power. That could contest our ability to control regions of strategic interest, one of those regions being the Middle East the Persian Gulf, that it, or what people now call the greater Middle East, right? Stretching from Israel all the way to Afghanistan. And so the notion that the, those two policies of promoting economic globalization and promoting primacy, were pursuing that throughout the 1990s. Well, those are things that, sure, there's going to be people who are going to benefit from that. There's going to be a lot of people who aren't going to benefit from that. It's going to create winners and losers on the economic side as well as the security side. And it's going to create winners and losers both abroad and in the United States. And those losers, the people who feel like they're losing out on these policies, well, some of them are going to be in a position to not do anything about it. But others are going to try to take matters into their own hands. And that, again, feeds into why something like the attack of 9-11 or a group like Al-Qaeda, had it not been Al-Qaeda, there would have been some other group. If it wasn't a group in the Middle East, it would have been some other group. I mean, if you look at like the laundry list of grievances that Osama bin Laden put forward for why he carried out attack, it's like everything. It's like, you know, he he wasn't like driven by some deep ideological, it's just, I don't like the United States. I don't like that the US is the major power. I mean, I don't like that they're supporting Saudi Arabia. I don't like that they're supporting Israel. He basically just said, I don't like that the U.S. is the major power in the world and doing what it's in its interest. And if it hadn't been Osama bin Laden, it would have been someone else who would have had that same idea, dislike, and had created an organization to try to attack the United States. And that's what we would have seen. And the same thing on the economic side. You know, there are some people who are going to sit there and be like, you know, I'm mad that I lost my job because of trade or I'm mad I lost my job because of this. I'll go and get retrained. But there's going to be other people who are going to be very upset by this and perhaps take measures into their own hands. And that's going to be both domestically as well as abroad.